Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 10 of Attitude Check, the business leadership podcast. Brent, tell me something new. Well, John Mark, I was listening to a podcast, believe it or not, the other day, and I heard a quote. <laughs> I heard a quote by the uh, great Jake the Snake Roberts, professional wrestler back in the day, for those of you who are not familiar, and it went something along the lines of this. If you plant grass seeds, grass will grow. If you plant rice seeds or rice, rice will grow. And if you plant fear, what do you think will grow? John Mark, thoughts on that? You know, Brent, a common theme that we've had from different guests on this podcast is that you can't let fear hold you back. So if you plant fear, most likely what that's going to do is prevent you from taking the risks that really help you to reap the rewards of life. I know that if I hadn't taken the risk and started my own business, I don't know where I'd be right now. I definitely wouldn't be as involved with the community. I wouldn't have started this podcast. Really, everything I owe is to pushing fear aside and really blazing a trail forward into the unknown for me personally. And I think another common thread that we should touch on too is it's okay to be afraid about stuff. And one, you know, you shouldn't let it hold you back. But two, if it's there, you have to treat it staying along the lines of this kind of growing analogy, almost like a lawn. Self-care is important. You have to maintain yourself a healthy state of mind to make sure you do have that get up and go and that motivation to keep going, even if you're trying something that you're not sure of, that you're afraid of. I know that's challenging to you. Yeah, that's good. Today, we have a guest on this podcast that really embodies what it's like to push past that that fear. He has been involved with this community as a leader, the Colorado Springs community. He's also done business internationally in microfinance. One thing that's interesting about Jake is that he is an amateur ornithologist. And for any of you that don't know, what that means is the study of birds. So he has a really interesting story from Harvard Review. You're not going to want to miss that because it has a surprising twist ending. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Jake Eichengreen. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community. Effect change and produce impact. I'm John Mark Radspinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check, the Business Leadership Podcast. We are excited to have Jake Eichengreen here today. Jake is a very involved member of this community and without a doubt, a influential young leader in Colorado Springs. He is the executive director of the Quad Innovation Partnership um, with Colorado College, as well as the other colleges in Colorado Springs, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, the Air Force Academy, and also Pikes Peak Community College. So Jake, to start us out, if you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you like to travel? Wow. Just starting out strong. Well, thank you, John Mark, for, for having me. And Brent, thank you very much. Um, very kind of you to say all those nice things about me. I'm just buying myself time here to figure out where I want to go. Namibia is, I think, the answer to that question because it's one of the least populated countries in the world and nobody goes there. And I just think that emptiness would be worth seeing. So it sounds like you're an introvert. I'm not, actually. Uh, it's amazing uh, that I kind of walk the line of introvert-extrovert, but I do a lot of extroverting in my day-to-day, -day, so introvert time is always needed. And, and that's not to say there wouldn't be some cool people on that trip with me. It's just that like that would be a cool thing to see. No, that would be cool. <laughs> so you said it was called what? Namibia. Namibia. It's the western South Africa, north of South Africa proper, but on that. Well, to all our listeners... We're going to make that the next uh, tourism capital of the world. 
<laughs> so how did you come up with Namibia? Did you just come across that on like a, a Snapple lid that's the least populated country or? No, one time uh, Top Gear did a special where they crossed the, the one of the deserts in Namibia and I was just like, I need to go there one day <laughs> and buying myself that time made me think of that Top Gear special and wanting to go there. Well, I'm pretty sure that may as well be the first and last time Namib- Namibia is the answer to that question. How many so. times fast can you say it? Not, not many. That's, <laughs> it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? So, Jake, tell us a little bit about your experience at the Quad Innovation Partnership. What exactly do you do? Good question. Uh, my experience at the Quad. Well, I could talk about that for a minute. Um, what exactly do I do? So, the Quad is a joint initiative between Carl College, Pikes Peak Community College, UCCS, and the Air Force Academy. And uh, our role is to close gaps between student preparedness and professional expectations, meaning... When a student graduates school, there's a lot of competence and ability and just capability that each student is kind of carrying with them based on their academic experience. Translating that into the professional environment is something that most of us kind of learn through trial and error and a lot of stumbles in our first jobs. And our role is to to help make that transition smoother, help students start more impactful, more meaningful careers more quickly. We do that by putting students to work. Uh, So we facilitate project-based work opportunities for students to get paid advancing a strategic or a tactical project for an area employer. Could be public sector, private sector. Uh, The dirty secret about the quad, it's not so much of a secret, but uh, is that I and my staff don't have to know anything about anything, really, um, because each of the projects that we do is ultimately run by a team of students from the four schools, a faculty advisor who has PhD-level expertise, and then a project manager. So our role is really facilitator uh, to create these experiential learning and growth opportunities for students and recent graduates. From what it sounds like, the quad is just a giant catalyst to to drive growth and innovation through the recently graduated students in Colorado Springs. Tell us a little bit more about how you facilitate that, because it can't be an easy thing to bring everyone together from four major colleges in town and and reach out to different community members uh, to help them out. Well, it's very generous of you to call us a giant catalyst. We're still a very small catalyst growing, but but we're new and experimenting with a lot of things. I think the best description of, of you know the role that we play and how we go about doing it is hustling. When I started at the Quad two years ago, it was little more than an idea. Um, the four schools had said we want to do something together, but they didn't necessarily have all of the details figured out or have kind of an ongoing operation for us to run with. It was really, a, okay, so what are the assets? What are the opportunities? Um, how do we go about sustainably achieving the mission? So I often describe that as, you know, the door was cracked and we had to hustle through it. And the hustle is ongoing um, day to day. There's still a lot of, uh, there are opportunities. We have to run with them. Um, whenever there's an opportunity, we, we try and say yes and, and be able to, to execute well upon whatever it is that's being asked of us. But we're still very much so in startup mode, which is a manual process looking for processes and procedures. But, you know, when we when we run into a wall, I mean, the, the reality is, is these four schools are large. Uh, they have a lot of processes. We're dealing with two state institutions, the DOD and a private uh, institution. So the, each has their own process, their own level of approval and accountability. And we're trying to build something entirely new that's never been done before within the middle of them. Whenever we run into a wall, which is quite frequently our, our role, our job, our work is really to bounce back from that quickly. So we run into brick walls all the time of how do we get this or this done? How do we work with this or this faculty? How do we structure payments or do events or 
what do we even call some of our programs? And it turns out a lot of those actions are pretty well regimented and prescribed within different systems. So we run into, nope, we can't do it that way. Nope, we can't do it that way. And we just have to kind of rub our foreheads and, and move a different direction and find a path that isn't blocked by obstacles. So you're constantly just switching gears in terms of how you do things yeah. and adapting to, yeah. to what's needed. Move fast. Facebook, when they were small, it was Zuckerberg's mantra was move fast and break stuff. Our role is close. It's move fast and don't break anything. Like we're, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to build something on the basis of collaboration and you don't really build positive collaborative working relationships. You're breaking things all the time. So our role is to figure out how do things work? How are they set up? And then how do we work within or around or through those systems, structures, people, offices, et cetera, to pull this off? So that's just a lot of hustling. So it's a lot of problem solving yep. is what you do. Mm-hmm. Problem solving and getting the right people on your, your team to... And making it up as we go along. <laughs> <laughs> so it's everyone's dream job. Uh, something like that. It's yeah. like mm-hmm. adulting, the stereotype sort of. of adulting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I don't know if you could really call me an adult, but that's just... Yeah, that's nice. We, didn't, we don't have to talk about my maturity level. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to know you a little bit more throughout the podcast. So. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> So on that note, Jake, you're 27 years old around there? Just turned 28, yeah. Okay, congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Yeah, one year closer to retirement and death. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. So as, you know, a 28-year-old with, you know, title of executive director, um, you know, it's obvious that you had a pretty good path towards your current position. So tell the listeners a little bit more about where you started off from and your journey towards your current position with the Quad. That's a fun story, not. No, I so I grew up. In Colorado Springs, I'm a Colorado Springs native, went to Palmer High School downtown. That's the question everybody always follows that up with. And when I was younger, I worked really hard to leave Colorado Springs. It's amazing how much this community has changed very quickly, but it was not a place I saw a lot of opportunity at the time. So moved out east to school, uh, had a lot of opportunities while I was in school to get involved in international development in East Africa, ultimately ended up in venture capital in Las Vegas for a variety of reasons that I still don't fully understand. And was working for the guy who built Zappos.com, Tony Shea. I was I was doing venture capital investing for him. Phenomenal opportunity for me to learn the ins and outs of business, uh, to get to work with 40 different companies a week um, and really understand their value proposition, how they were built, how they were thinking about strategic growth. Just unbelievable opportunity for me to learn and grow. Then uh, fell into my next position. I was rock climbing, uh, visiting my family in, in Colorado and fell and broke an ankle and couldn't fly and had to take some extended leave from work waiting for surgery and connected with a, a real estate development company here in, in Colorado Springs um, or the one of the people who run the company. He was also on crutches, so walked out of that coffee with a job offer, obviously, because we just had the crutches in common. <laughs> um, worked there for uh, another year, uh, another just phenomenal opportunity to learn a completely different side of the business spectrum. VC moves fast, lots of risk, lots of planned failures. You know, you make 10 investments, nine of them you're not getting back. Real estate is the opposite of that, where you have to be so intentional with every move that you make. Make sure that all of the variables are controlled for before you make a decision. And then I moved to East Africa to start my own company. Landed this role with the Quad due to some relationships I had previously. Um, Somebody reached out and said, hey, we're going to staff this thing. Are you ever thinking about coming home? And in that moment, I actually had Giardia, which is a just horrible gastrointestinal situation. So I was just sick as a dog reading this email. Hey, are you ever coming home? And I was like, yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty great. <laughs> so, so, uh, had a 
interview with two college presidents sitting in my underwear under a mosquito net in the middle of nowhere, Uganda at 11 p.m. And six months later was starting my work. So tell us a little bit about that period of time that you were in Africa. Uh, so I still do some work in Africa. So I've been working on and off in Uganda for eight years or coming up on eight years now. Started with undergraduate study abroad that turned into thesis research that turned into a company. I joke that I got bit by something and just haven't been able to stop going back since. So all of my research, everything that I've done over there is related to economic development and understanding microfinance loans. So these are the small loans that are pretty popular in development literature right now. A few hundred bucks given for three months, six months at interest that is low in comparison to local rates, but quite high in comparison to what we might expect as Americans. So the average microfinance interest rate is somewhere between 30 and 120% annually, which is difficult to build a business with. Um, so most of my research was on kind of counter to the popular narrative of how these loans are un uh, unlocking opportunity for small-scale entrepreneurs across the developing world and, and really starting to be a little bit more critical on Okay, so we're moving, these loans are helping people start small shops, but they're really not opening opportunities to enter more lucrative, meaningful, sustainable processing or what they call value addition sectors in the, the literature. So like, you know, you have wheat and you want to grind it to flour. Well, the grinding is really the value add, not just reselling the flour. And the loans were helping people resell the flour, but nobody was able to enter those, those other opportunities. So spent a lot of time thinking about what would an alternative structure look like, Traditional equity investing doesn't work over there because there are no companies on paper. The barrier to, to incorporating a company is so high that people do it. It's just the very upper portion of the income spectrum, and the need is on the lower income of the, of the income spectrum. So you can't own a piece of somebody's company because company doesn't exist. It's just their thing that they do. So we, we came up with a what we call micro-equity which is somewhere between a loan and a formal equity investment um, to try and help support the growth of these more complex businesses. Massive company, radically changing the world. Our portfolio is a grand total of one company. Uh, <laughs> we're working on a, or we're still testing and kind of understanding whether or not this will work uh, long-term or at scale, but we have a little corn milling operation in West Nile, Uganda, really close to the border with South Sudan and DRC. It's been going for th almost three years now, which is exciting. Most loan-funded businesses shut down after 10 months. So we're seeing some, some promising results, but a lot of questions still to answer. So is that micro-equity structure something that you kind of developed by yourself, or is that something that's been tested in other uh, developing areas in the world? Um, there are other people who have called something micro-equity, but nobody... But it's never stuck. Um, it's always been these kind of small one-off projects that, that you know, li like what we're currently working on. Mm -hmm. um, but most of them have shut down. So this structure is pretty unique that we we put together, um, trying to leverage like local cultural institutions and some of the accountability pieces of it. Because that's the hard part is when you don't own anything and there's no way to enforce any kind of agreement around what I would get in return for putting money into this business. There's very little opportunity. So so our competitive advantage is really how we've chosen to turn to local culture and the accountability mechanisms that are inherent in that culture and who do you need to involve in the decision-making process. Completely different players, right? We're not working with the CEO and the landowner and this type of this type. It's, it's completely different social roles and cultural roles that we've come to understand and, and trying are trying to use to help people support themselves. That's really awesome that you're taking the kind of local cultural business environment and adapting to it 
I mean, I guess, you know, that makes sense if you want to have a successful venture in you know, some other place that you're not familiar with. Adaptability is huge. Um, so you've been in uh, Uganda for, you said, on and off about eight years now? Yeah, since 2011. That's awesome. So what are some things that you, I guess, take from American business culture and use over there and kind of vice versa? Ooh, good question. Uh, most of the time people ask me the, vi- the other way around is, what have you learned from Uganda that you bring back? But it's actually a lot less than, than like a lot less sophisticated, maybe I should say, than you might think. Uh, the biggest things that we use over there that are not as well leveraged as you might think they are uh, is simple business planning skills. Simple financial forecasting, simple planning, thinking more than six months into the future before making a, a decision. Doing that quickly, right? Not wasting our time trying to iron out every single detail. And, and that's just a testament to how quickly Uganda has developed is that, you know, a generation ago, Uganda was a subsistence society by and large. There were schools sort of there, but it was, it, it is not, a, was not a market-based economy. It was small villages of farmers feeding themselves and surviving. And in a generation, we've gone from that paradigm and that way of life now to a not a fully developed market economy, but a pretty sophisticated market economy where there are businesses and supply chains and formal relationships and contracts and all sorts of other things that did not exist 25 years ago. So there's just not as much of a familiarity with this idea of, well, we need to assess whether or not an idea is a good one before we put money into it. You know, a good story to illustrate that is I was doing some work in one part of the country with some farmers prior to starting this this company. They had a neighbor who had a chicken, a poultry operation, and this neighbor was very wealthy. And they said, well, we're going to sell all of our crops and we're going to buy chickens and we're just going to do it because he's wealthy. Therefore, chickens must be the key and, and that's what's going to happen. And then we sat down and did just a little bit of forecasting and they realized that you have to have a certain, you know, you have to be operating at scale before raising chickens is profitable. Like you can't just raise 12 at a time because medicine and food and all of, all of the work required to raise chickens, that just, there's nothing left. So it was the first time that, that they had been had the opportunity to think through pros, cons, potential outcomes, how all these types of things work together. And they move so fast when exposed to that type of thinking. It's so cool to just watch, you know, the introduction of a a simple concept like business planning, just catch fire and go completely out of control in the best possible way. So these people are very willing to learn. Oh my goodness. So willing to learn. Hungry. That's another level to grassroots, quote unquote, business movement is just being able to see that idea develop and just mm-hmm. catch on mm-hmm. that. That's mm-hmm. an awesome thing to be able to witness. Kind of moving on from that, I love all of that experience and that you're very passionate about seeing that economic development and the microfinance sure. and micro equity loans. So transitioning back to America, um, <laughs> one of your jobs at the, the Quad Innovation is essentially managing expectations of students coming out of college. What have you seen being some of the biggest roadblocks for students coming out of college, and what advice do you have for college students that are graduating? I think there's this huge misconception among the student populations that adults know what they're doing. Again, I'm not quite sure that I agree with this classification of me as adult, but I have yet to meet an adult that knows what they're doing. And I mean that in the best possible way, right? We're all kind of in the process of making decisions and responding to them and then making more decisions on the basis of those decisions. It's just a a never-ending decision-making Every day we're faced with choices. We have to respond to those choices, do the best we can, and we always do. We, we, we all try to bring our knowledge and experience and values and, and just our, our whole person into the decision-making process. The students that we work with, I think, have this conception of there's a right answer to professional life and adulthood, 
in a way that is the same as a math problem set. Um, not everyone, but I, I think it's quite common. A lot of the transition that we try and support students through is that sense of, yeah, there is no right answer. There's also no wrong answer. Moving into a professional adult life is there are expectations that are placed on you. You know, there, there are wrong answers, right? You can't not show up for work, those types of things. There's not the same level of somebody else knows the answer that they're asking you to then go find. You have to go find your own answer. Um, somebody else may be asking the question or you might be asking the question of yourself. That can be a really uncomfortable transition. So I know I'm being a little vague and like how I'm describing that, like not really specific because it, it expresses itself differently for different people. But it really is a key moment of change for students who, for some, have been planning for college and, and marching along this kind of prescribed path of of academic success success since they were in elementary school and their parents enrolled them in extracurriculars so that they would look better on a college application. So tying that into all of the other things you've, you're currently working on and have done in the past, it seems like you have a lot of experience from different groups as far as mentoring people or being around people who are trying to make a decision, whether that's new business opportunities in Uganda mm-hmm. or whether that's in the venture capital world. Did you ever expect yourself to be in this kind of position coming through college or developing your professional career? No. And honestly, that's the first time I've ever thought about it in that way of when you look backwards, it's always like a pretty straight line. You're like, oh, that led to this, that led to that. But when you kind of are in the midst of it, no idea where I'm going or even where I'm going next, like tomorrow, like I have no idea where I'm going to end up tomorrow, Wednesday, day after today, (laughs) like not like some metaphorical tomorrow. So no, I had no idea where I wanted to end up. When I, when I graduated college, um, I did this fellowship called Venture for America. That was how I landed in venture capital. And it was an interesting fellowship because I had never really found business as a super exciting concept, but I'd been really entrepreneurial since I was little. I started a little business when I was 19 and there was that thread through my life of business. And I listened to a speech that the founder of Venture for America gave, Andrew Yang, and it was basically along the lines of 80-ish percent of the graduating class from the top universities in the United States filter into one of five career paths. And he, he named them, and I'm not going to remember exactly what it was, medicine, law, consulting, finance, and something else. And that was limited to you know the top however many schools. And then he said, the mission of this organization, Venture for America, is to help open the perceived opportunity set to recent graduates, that there is more than just those five opportunities out there when you're coming out of a, a good school. And that just resonated with me. And I realized how little I understood of the world of professional opportunities. You know, at the time I felt I was, and I still feel I was very fortunate to not just have kind of the typical college graduate paths within my set of perceived horizons, but also all the work that I had been doing internationally at that point and and some of the other just random experiences that I had. And he, you know, it was a YouTube video. It was not, I was not watching him give this speech. It was a YouTube video. And, And I was just like, wow, that's like, yeah, that's how I feel is I just have no idea what's out there. And I'm on in interview processes for management consulting firms and everybody says that everybody who's in management consulting is really unhappy and I'm sure that's not true I'm sure there are people who love it but I also know that you know the stereotype culture of that field and just decided that I'd go after this fellowship kind of applied on that whim uh, another friend of mine had done it and it said good things and then did an interview and I was like wow I kind of want this a little bit more now and then did another interview I was like wow I want this a little bit more now and and ultimately you know I have not pursued the traditional startup path I'm, I haven't pursued venture capital for the, what I do in Uganda I'm not the quad is a, a revenue generating social enterprise but it's owned by a nonprofit 
or series, you know, four nonprofit colleges. It's not even actually an entity. It's just a thing. Through that just decision to say, hey, what else is out there? Here I am. I, you know, fell off a rock at one point and landed at another job. So all that to say, it's never a straight path. No, it's never a straight path. And it's also a say yes to the opportunities that are in front of you. And, and if something resonates, listen to it. There's all sorts of things that many people that I work with have closed themselves off to just out of fear as part of it, but also this preconceived notion of what right is, of what success is, of what uh, should be. And I've done everything I can to not pursue what should be and instead pursue what seems interesting and have been very fortunate in how that's kind of progressed. So then what is success to you? Ooh, good question. <laughs> what is success to me? It's happiness. And that might seem like a cop-out answer, but it's really grounded in a lot of different pieces of my own story. Like one of the initial, so when I was first doing work in Uganda, uh, I did the study abroad as a sophomore in college, and I went back my junior year and spent several months living there by myself collecting data for this paper I was writing. And what I was trying to do was understand what the academics call subjective well-being, meaning the answer to the question, hey, how you doing? Like, if you say good, then your subjective well-being is good. If you say bad, then you're, it's just how you perceive you're doing, uh, your life is going. And that piece was always missing from the development literature. People would look at microfinance or they'd look at different development programs and they'd say, well, this program accomplished a this percent increase in incomes or we saw this number of infant mortality, fewer infant mort infant deaths, however you say that. But we saw infant mortality decline. We saw this disease. It was very quantitative and it was very dry and like missing the human piece of development. And what I had experienced living over there was that people were developing, their incomes were growing, but they were actually a lot less happy than they had been because of how fast their society was changing. They were in communities that had new things happening that they didn't understand. There were old ways of doing things that weren't like old and antiquated. It was just like, for example, ways of relating with your neighbor that there was one community I was in where they had been a subsistence farming community 20 years previously. And I was talking with some of the, you know, 50 year olds in the community, not super old, you know, very wise people, just kind of middle aged adults. And they were expressing all sorts of confusion and discontent and fear because in those 20 years, the, the social norms had gone from, I have extra food because I have a field and it happened to produce this year. I'm going to share it with my neighbor to who didn't have as good of a yield because we're all in this together to now everyone has these little shops where they're selling the same goods at the same prices. And they were starting to sabotage each other because there were no other opportunities to gain competitive advantage and, and livelihood was directly dependent on the amount of sales. And since everybody was, so it was this massive shift from this sharing norm to this competition norm. And I don't want to say either is good or bad. Each one has advantages and disadvantages. But it was remarkable to me that this human piece of development, and isn't that the whole point of development is helping people live better lives, was missing from the development story. So to me, success is really grounded in that. And that's how we talk about the work at the Quad too. You know, we talk about our mission as being connecting students to, to meaningful work. We help students have access to meaningful work for their careers. However they choose to define meaning, we support experience and skills and just network growth that allows them in theory and in practice too, we, we have some really exciting metrics coming in these days to land careers that are providing for their happiness. So really your path has not been set around money or the traditional American dream of getting money that way you can get more stuff. It's been more focused around pursuing things that you're interested in and passionate about. Money's a piece of it. 
you know, like I have to keep my own lights on. I don't, I don't yeah, come from a, from a wealthy family. There's, you know, there's no, you know, I am the product of a public school in Colorado Springs and a ridiculously generous financial aid grant to go to college. And there's a lot of help along the way. And now I do need to sustain my own existence. Uh, so there's a threat of money, but it's not necessarily the driving force. You know, am I pursuing, do I only make decisions on the basis of salary? Not at all. Yeah. There's a lot more to it. It's more a means to an end than it is. Yes and no. Like I would say, it's it's important. You know, the more the more adulting that I've done, the more I've come to understand the relationship between money and autonomy, and money and impact, and money and you know when you're again, I'll keep I keep turning to international development. I know we keep trying to change <laughs> courses back to America, uh, <laughs> but one of the biggest challenges in economic development internationally is where is the money coming from when a nation state, a country is providing money, it's usually given with a lot of ulterior motives. Uh, some of them are good, some of them are bad, but it's driven by the politics of that country, it's driven by the geopolitical ambitions of that country. Um, for example, uh, Haiti is entirely re reliant on food donations at this point to feed its populations. Forty years ago, they were growing enough uh, food to feed their population, and there was an intentional move from the U.S. State Department to purchase U.S.-grown food to feed needy people around the world because that's good for U.S. farmers. So there's advantages and disadvantages, but the, the stipulations tied to that money can corrupt, ultimately, the outcomes. So is money important to my own decision-making? Yeah, because I've come to understand that you, know, you don't have autonomy without your own resources, and there's a very big set of ands to that equation. I think that's a good way of putting it. You touched on both it's not the most important thing in the world but it's also something that is a driving force in life sure you said autonomy and impact right yeah totally totally and and i think is that if i were you know if i ruled the world does that be the system that i would put in place probably not but that's the world we live in and and it's worth accepting and moving on so tying it back into kind of the i guess international development experience you know not going back to america over here but <laughs> starting a business in uganda couldn't have been easy i imagine there's not really a set blueprint on how to get that done so speak on some of the i guess challenges you faced building you know your your business and developing other businesses there and just you know how people can apply just going from the ground up no i'm sure there's no like textbook on how to do that in Uganda. So can just speak on that a little bit. Uh, Uganda introduced me to the phrase technical know-who and today to date that's the most valuable concept I've ever come to understand is it, it does not matter what you know it is who you know and how you go about building relationships to accomplish whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. So in Uganda, Uganda is a very relationship-based place. Trust is, is entirely dependent on relationships, and these relationships are cultivated over years and years and years and years and years. So launching a company in Uganda is pretty straightforward. There's a, a high barrier to entry if you are a subsistence farmer to incorporating a company. All in all, it costs a few hundred U.S. dollars to incorporate a company. So a buddy of mine also has an operation over there. I asked him who his lawyer was. His Ugandan lawyer, this guy, Ibrahim, wonderful guy, educated at NYU, now one of the, you know, now a good lawyer in Uganda, uh, charged me, I think it was 300 bucks to do a, put all the paperwork together and f incorporate a Ugandan business. Um, at the time, I was living there actually on a, on a Fulbright, um, which is a State Department program. So there was there's some visa immigration components to that that I didn't know that I had already kind of green-lighted myself into by having the 
specific type of visa that I had for the, the Fulbright. So some of it was accidental of if I was there on a tourist visa, it would have been way more difficult. And now that I've left, the company still exists. So the fact that I go back on tourist visas to kind of check in on things, it doesn't pose nearly as much of an obstacle as it would to start the thing. Yeah, it, I, it, there really isn't a process and I never learned a process. It was really just try and do something, but ask a lot of questions first. And that was really the Ugandan piece of it is is I might have an idea, I might think of something that might work, and I, I came to understand that I was thinking about it entirely differently than the people I was working with. So, for example, like I work with this farmers group, and it's just a group of 35-ish farmers who do stuff together. They live in the same area. There are 35 members to this group, but there are 50 people in the group. And it took me like seven months to figure out how that all worked out, because that's not math, right? Like 35 does not equal 50 if there are 35 members but 50 people, like are some of the people not members? No, it turns out they're all members. It was that a husband and wife counted as one member. And that was just like a tiny little example of just that tiny little disconnect in how my brain processes information and how the, the people I was working with did. And so I just, you know, the key was ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, and like move. Don't wait forever, but but ask questions and then make an action and ask questions and make an action. And that's kind of the same process we've employed building the quad here. But because this is my own home culture and home language and we're operating in the American business paradigm that I understand, I've needed to ask less clarification questions and haven't been stuck on anything for six months as basic as <laughs> how many members are there? <laughs> so it's a lot of not what you know, but who you know. Mm -hmm. and asking questions to figure things out. It's just accepting that, you know, they always talk about there's three types of things, there's three types of information, there's what you know, there's what you know you don't know, and there's what you don't know you don't know. And it really is just accepting that, or just assuming that you're operating an area where you don't even know what you don't know. And if you come into that just accepting that you know nothing, it becomes much, I found it became much easier to build some common understandings as opposed to assume that we're both speaking the same language and using the same terms because we weren't speaking the same language like literally <laughs> so it kind of ties in i'm going to make a weird transition please kind of ties into as someone transitioning from college into the workforce or even from high school into mm -hmm. the workforce mm -hmm. depending on what path you decide to take a lot of that asking questions really just assuming that you don't know anything comes more from a mentor finding mm -hmm. a mentor someone that you can ask questions and really take on that assumption i know nothing your experience you know a lot more than i do mm -hmm. so help me help me learn Mm -hmm. um, so how has mentorship played a role in the things that you've done? Yeah, I completely agree that there is a role, like the who you know person of it is who do you get to ask those questions of. It's not necessarily the back room, hey, will you do me this favor entirely illegally or you know, mm -hmm. out, out of sync. It's who do you know that can either provide an introduction or answer a question or provide guidance or like provide feedback. And I think my own personal relationship with mentorship is that I've had a gazillion of them. And I don't, I've never had a single mentor necessarily, or like a primary mentor that I've, you know, some people like one mentor and that's really their trusted person, their partner in a way. And that's never been my relationship with mentorship. It's really been recognizing that I really don't know very much. And there are a lot of people who can teach me a lot of things and trying to teach, to treat each opportunity as an opportunity to learn too. So if you asked me who was my mentor, I probably wouldn't have an answer for you. But if you ask me who were some of my mentors, my list would probably be 125 people long. Because sometimes mentorship 
in my experience, has been a, a one-off, right? There's just been a one really informative meeting. And sometimes mentorship has been a multi-year relationship where we see each other frequently. And sometimes it's been a really long multi-year process where we've seen each other three times over that whole period. But every time I walk away being like, man, I am doing everything wrong. That guy gets it or that woman, you know, or she gets it, right? Like, so, but yeah, the know who, the technical know who is, who do you turn to for answers? Who do you turn to to poke holes in your ideas? Who do you turn to to ask you questions to better understand how you're thinking about it or how I'm thinking about it? Oh, let's say mentorship is important. Mentorship it, is huge. And it can come in a lot of different ways from the informal one-offs to having a more formal relationship. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a, a key concept towards mentorship that a lot of people don't really think of as far as, you know, coming to your mentor with ideas for them to poke holes in it. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times people think of mentors as just someone that you go and maybe ask a few questions and they just give you this like sagely wisdom of how the world works. But right. it's it's just as important for you to bring something to them for them to work with. So it's not just a, a basically a one-way conversation. I think sometimes people approach mentorship from this perspective of a mentor tells you what you should do, right? Like, what should I do, oh, mighty mentor? But that I think I think you're absolutely right that it's a mentorship is much more of a two-way street. It's more of a what am I not thinking about here? Hey, I just want to run this by you. What do you think? How would you approach the situation? What are your values? How did you make these decisions? What are the, your frustrations in your day to day? Just kind of understanding their perspective on life. Honestly, in some of the best mentors that I've had, they don't give me direct answers. Like exactly. I'll, I'll try and seek something out, like. How did you do this? What's the best way for me oh, to do this? God, and they yeah. they will answer it with a question, and they'll keep probing me. Oh, man. Um, so they, they force me to come to my own conclusion, but that's that's the best way to learn. That's one of one of my favorite mentors, and I do have favorites, but I'm not going to name names. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go, and it is a he. I will, <laughs> I'll go to him with a, with a situation. I'll be like, hey, like help me work through this. How would you approach this? What do you think? And the only thing he responds with are these brilliantly crafted open-ended questions <laughs> that aren't well what do you think or what did they say or how did this happen it's like what do you think you should do or how do you think this other person is approaching it and it's this 35 40 minute long conversation where he is expertly guiding me to an answer but he's not giving me that answer at all he's just asking a question and then asking another question that is kind of connected or sometimes not but then i have to draw the connection myself and at the end of the time you know it always ends with i agree i think you're on exactly the right track and it's like the most empowering moment of just like i figured this out myself like i knew this and he agrees (laughs) yeah it is a good point mentorship like we talked about it's not something that you get a whole bunch of answers from Mm -hmm. it's something that you are guided to those answers yourself. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be a regimented process. It's not a process, right? Like yeah. it's not a weekly meet and for some people it's a weekly meeting. But like in my experience it has not at all been a weekly meeting to talk about my it's not therapy. And and don't get me wrong, right? Like therapy is also a tremendously valuable tool for a lot of people to accomplish really amazing things. And that's a completely different relationship and structure than mentorship. So I totally agree with everything you just said on mentorship. It's such a critical part to developing whether, you know, you're young, you're old, just continually learning throughout your life and careers is, is huge. And 
well, I'm sure we could talk about this in America and things happening overseas for another couple hours. Uh, we want to be respectful of your time and kind of transition into our shorter bullet questions. So I'll recommend one resource that's helpful to you in your everyday life, a book that you would recommend, and anything you want to uh, leave with the audience. So I'll start with the book. Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee is an old book, uh, and I'm currently reading it now, so I haven't finished it, but I think everybody knows the ending. And what struck me about it is just like that's the legacy of our Western society, and, and there's just so much that we can learn from where we came from, good and bad, and accepting the things that we have done wrong that we don't really want to own or be proud of is a key piece of, of progress. A resource for that everyone can use in their in their day-to-day life, I would say, honestly, your grocery store. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I, that comes from a place of just eating well and taking care of yourself. We, we all live stressful lives these days. We all do more than we probably should. And, and I certainly don't know how to say no at all. I've yet to figure that out. And there's something to be said for eating well, eating right, and how that type of, of, uh, of self-care can support you through whatever it is that you're going through. And then the last thing that I will leave the the listeners with is just this really interesting study that I was recently reading it came out of Harvard completely separate from what we're talking about. They were studying uh, roadkill outside of Boston, and they realized that of all the birds that were getting hit by cars, uh, crows were not among them. And so it launched this whole study into into crows and how they work. And uh, they figured out that, that crows in Massachusetts have, particularly in the Boston area, have a really sophisticated uh, communication mechanism. Whenever a car's coming, they go, ka, ka. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that might be the best setup I've ever. <laughs> I'm not expecting that. It took me a minute. <clears throat> that was good. That was good. Just this cut it good. off there, just with the silence. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's, that's great. I might have to use that. Um, well, it's one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> you, you had me hooked. I was like leaning forward in the chair. And oh, I saw it. Like, I saw is, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting study. Never heard of this one. Yeah, and yeah. boom. Well, Jake, it has been <laughs> such a pleasure to uh, have you on the podcast. Uh, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experiences. So share one parting piece of wisdom and the best way to connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Everyone is the protagonist in their own story, and respecting that and understanding that is a humbling experience and also has really been helpful to me in conflict resolution and how to get in touch with me good question i'm horrible at social media uh, linkedin is a good way though it might take me a little while to get back to you awesome well thank you again for being on the podcast this is john mark and this is brent signing off wow there was just so much that jake talked about and he hit on so many good points and he dropped so many value bombs in this episode and we're very thankful that he he took the time to come on to this episode of Attitude Check. It was definitely interesting learning a little bit more about what it looks like in the international community in terms of microfinancing and how culture is a driving force behind that. And hearing about his cool model with the, the micro equity loans, that was, that was a very interesting aspect to microfinancing as well. And Jay definitely doesn't have a traditional business education or background, but he's obviously a really sharp mind when it comes to business development and putting in that sort of planning and groundwork for you know, students, new companies, 
and you know venture capitalists to grow. Make sure to like us on Facebook to stay up to date on all of our future episodes and guests, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thank you to everyone that shares our posts on social media. Be sure to share this and tag a young professional that you feel like could really benefit from this episode with Jake. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for a new episode of Attitude Check, the Business Leadership Podcast. Thank you to all our listeners, and we look forward to having you back next time.